0: Back in September, the Booker Prize-winning novelist Ian McEwan spoke to us about his novel Lessons. This time, McEwan, the author of Amsterdam on Chesil Beach and Atonement, has looked to his own early life for inspiration, from his youth in Libya to thoughts about the life he might have lived if he had not been a novelist. He does this in the novel Lessons through the fictional life of his main character, Roland Baines. We began our conversation with Ian McEwan recalling his life as a boy in Libya and the Suez crisis.
1: I mean, I was eight years old at the time of the Suez crisis, so I understood nothing about what was going on. All I knew was I was suddenly bundled into an army camp. Uh, my mum was away in England. My dad was a soldier and he was a rather distant figure with a gun strapped to his waist. And it was the best 10 days of my life. Uh, so that's, that's how that international crisis crashed in on me uh, and I think in some ways uh, I spent the rest of my teens wondering if I was ever going to feel so free and wonderful again and it took me into my early 20s ever to find just that kind of liberation. I think that taste of freedom knocking around this army camp with I mean imagine for a boy of that age in those times the machine gun nests where we were allowed to climb up to uh, the tank workshops the soldiers were so friendly. Um we had no sense of any threat. We knew nothing, absolutely nothing. But no school, just running around free as a bird. And I think it had a long effect on me. Um, I think you know, I could even make the case that's one reason I became a writer, because I would never wanted to have a job again, any job. <laughs> so, uh.
0: <laughs> and, and, and in fact, the, your character Roland Baines in the book, this is how, in, in many ways, you examine his life Lots yeah. of biographical details that yeah. mirror are similar to or are slightly different versions of your own life. How do you define the relationship between this Roland Baines character and, you know, his life and your well, life?
1: Well, you know, our lives kind of diverge about the age of 16. He has to sort of run away from his school. Um, he's been sexually abused, um, even though he feels he, he was an active agent in it. Um And my life went in a different direction. At 16, um, I stayed on at school, went to university, and so on. Mm. So Roland, in a way, lives the life I think I would have led if I had not discovered writing in myself. I knew I didn't want to have a job. I reckon I would have lived on the margins, like so many do. Um, Roland becomes uh, – there's a bit of writing for a listings magazine, Mm. like Time Out. He – teaches tennis uh, for a bit, part-time on the public courts, and he becomes a, a player in a hotel lounge bar, uh, uh, you know, just playing piano music, munch music. And um, I've often thought that there are many of us who don't climb on the career ladder, mm. um, don't look at our retirement prospects in 40 years' time, Um and we should never regard them as failures. Uh, in many ways, they might be happier and freer than than yeah. people on, you know, a nice safe salary. So yeah. I gave him a lot of myself. He's a, he's a sort of alter ego.
0: Yeah. So in lots of ways, is this? Could we say that lessons is Ian McEwan the alternative biography or the alternative memoir? Is that what we're looking yeah. at? Every every now and then, I give him absolutely what happened to me.
1: So. Um, especially the fall of the Berlin Wall. I was over there on the 10th of November. Uh, so, I certainly raided my own notebooks for, mm. for that period. And that's the beginning of, for Roland, a stretch of complete cultural and political optimism. He thought the world can only get better now. We're on a new track. It's just going to be great.
0: I'm guessing you thought that yourself at the time. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, I, I remember, I mean, I knew Berlin well. I'd been, I'd set a novel there called The Innocent um, a few years before. And I, remember standing in the middle of No Man's Land, because the wall really was two parallel walls with the No Man's Land in between. Uh, they'd cleared some mines and the automatic machine guns and got away all the dogs out the way. I stand there looking at the rabbits grazing, thinking your time is over, mate. Um, this is all going to be developed You're right in the heart of Berlin. And sure mm-hmm. enough, it's potsdamer Platz and it's tower blocks now. Um, but I thought this is... A- Strange to me, as standing on Mars, you know, this is such an extraordinary moment. It really thrilled me. Mm.
0: And if you think of the journey, I suppose, from the the, the end of the Second World War in the in the forties to that point in nineteen eighty nine, half a century. Let's go from yeah. from nineteen eighty nine, not quite a half a century later, into where we are now, and the events of of capital of the of the, the capital in washington uh at the beginning yeah. of january that's that's quite that's quite a journey yet again and maybe not to the place you expected it to go i'm guessing
1: no none of us can ever it's amazing we all make this future but we're hopeless at guessing it um what's going to happen um yeah i mean roland towards the end of his life 30 years on is it's just in his 70s and he feels great foreboding about the future, not only the climate emergency, but the political dispensation around the world. And he charts the 30 years since the fall of the wall. How did we, by what steps, what motivation, what accidents brought us to the assault on the Capitol in the United States, in Washington, uh, in January the 6th last year? So, yeah, it's a sort of meditation on this constant soundtrack as it's kind of like a soundtrack of our lives, even if you're not a news junkie, uh, that shape our sense of things, even our sense of ourselves. And as you said right at the beginning, um, nothing turns lives upside down more than a war. So I touch on you know my parents and the child they gave away in 1942 and never told us about who popped up in our lives, uh, many years later a man in his 60s a very nice man my brother my full brother um, and it forced on me that backwards look at my mother who always seemed a rather crushed and nervous figure i think she pined for that baby she never got over giving a baby away um, to rather mm. to save my father's career and to you know stop the gossip and any hatred in the village one detail of that is i an old box of old photographs and found in it, something I'd not seen for many, many years, a picture of my mother in 1940 before all this happened. Her first husband was going away to the war. This was a studio photo. And that woman there, she's 23, 24 years old, incredibly beautiful, long hair, and a confident, steady gaze into the camera. I reckon I never knew that woman, and I reckon she disappeared on the railway station the moment she gave that baby away. She was an apologetic, rather easily intimidated woman. Very sweet-natured and very tender and very easily bossed around by my dad. Um, And I wish I'd known her. I stared into this. And so, yes, I did discover Hmm. what I thought was a lifelong, again, which relates to the whole of the novel, the ways in which certain events in your life can just cast a long shadow. And I think giving away that baby cast a very long shadow in my mother's life.
0: Yeah, it sounds and If like... only
1: she'd got to know this this yeah. baby when he yeah. grew up because he's a very nice guy. He felt no bitterness. He went to see her, but she was too far gone with her dementia. It was tragic. He couldn't couldn't
0: write it I know, uh, it's, more extraordinarily. It's, it's absolutely heartbreaking in, in its reality as well as in the way we, we... Well, it's not as heartbreaking in the, in, the, in, the, in the book. There's a different kind of feel to it. But you talk about um, aspects that cast a long shadow and I guess we need to be absolutely clear from the outset in, in the discussion of this particular aspect of the novel, which is there from the very start, uh, the, the, the sexual abuse that the young Roland experiences. This is absolutely fictional?
1: It's absolutely fictional, um, I mean, I, I've read of many other people's experiences, so maybe they were sh- shaped by those to some extent. But mostly, no, I it was a sort of what if. Um, mm. It was my starting point. Um, so he's 11 years old. He's at boarding school, um, actually a state-run boarding school, same as the one I went to. And the piano teacher, you know, runs her hands under his shorts. But um and pinches him and generally seems to take charge of himself of charge of how his appearance sending him off to wash his hands all the time and straightening up his trousers um but then he he moves on from her to another teacher and two or three years later comes the cuba missile crisis and the boys in the dormitory are always talking about sex which none of them know anything about it but they boast and talk and joke and then uh They hear that the world might uh, come to an end. And one of them says in the dark, as they're meant to be going to sleep, what if you died without it, it being your first sexual experience? And this really strikes hard into the mind of Roland Baines. So he goes and visits the piano teacher, and it's as if she's waiting for him. And there begins an affair that lasts between his ages of 14 and 16. Um, Very intense. And it leaves... Well, it doesn't ruin him. It just deflects his
0: life. It's sexual abuse. And you're very clear about this. You do write from the point of view of a young man and the sexual abuse has been carried out by uh, not a lot, but a a woman who's a little bit older. What about that particular dynamic was interesting to you?
1: Well, not only the long shadow it casts, but... Often, I think in these cases, the victim feels that he or she is the initiator or, you know, is, is willing, has agency. And it's only with time that you reflect and discover that you did not. I mean, you cannot have a consensual relationship, you know, and a 14 year old. It just, uh, however, um, Roland might be the one who turns up in her house, uh, on this rather spurious idea that he's about to be vaporized in the third world war. She is the one who's actually takes control of him again. So, um, that is an important element. The other thing is, um, that 45 years later, he goes to see her, he goes to confront her. Um, and again, I think one thing that really interests me here is, This word closure, I I always uh, reach for my gun when I hear it. Although they meet, although they have a full-on conversation and she tells him everything about what happened and why she did it and who she was and what was on her mind at the time, nothing is sold. Um, There are experiences that you either forget or they just become part of your baggage and you have to carry it with you. So that's very much part of the drift of of the novel.
0: And that was Ian McCune speaking to me in September. And what a month that was for book interviews here in Arena. I also spoke to the double Booker Prize winning author and creator of The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood, ahead of her appearance at the Clifton Arts Festival. Margaret Atwood won her second Booker Prize in 2019 for the Testaments and since then she has published a book of poetry entitled Dearly, dedicated to her late husband, Graham Gibson. She also brought out a book of essays entitled Burning Questions and she wrote a collection of short stories, Old Babes in the Wood, which will be published early next year. The title story in that collection, which was previously published in The New Yorker, tells of two sisters taking a break in a falling down cabin built by their father. But central to the story is the theme of grief and the tendency sometimes to avoid speaking about grief. I asked Margaret Atwood about her own experience of grief and how it informed her writing of this story and in general.
2: Well, as somebody once told me, if you want to express grief... You go out into a field and scream. Uh, so you don't necessarily write that grief directly because it wouldn't have words.
0: And when you come to then, if you've done your, your, your whaling in the field, when you come to, write, to writing a story like this, does the grief that you have been feeling in your personal life, how does it seep in or how does it inform what you're writing?
2: Well, I think that's pretty obvious from, from reading the stories. But uh, let us say that... that A piece of writing that you publish is not for the writer. A piece of writing that you publish is for the reader. So I think what you're doing is evoking rather than screaming in a field and giving, as it were, a window for the reader, which may also be a window into the reader. In fact, if it isn't a window in the reader, then that's the wrong reader for that particular piece of work. I don't think it's a question of just self-expression on part of writer i think it's a question of evocation Uh, and this is why words were so important uh, i think for in particular ireland ireland is an extremely extremely focused on words as you know Uh, in fact it used to be when you were sitting on Aer lingus you were sitting on a that was embroidered with the names of irish writers they may have rethought that. <laughs> they may have wanted somebody sitting on James Joyce, but but so it was. When you got onto the plane, you saw all of these uh, names of yeah. Irish writers. If you went into a country pub, of the kind that in England would have pictures of, of horses and you know hounds and things. You would find pictures yeah. of writers. So it has been very very important to Ireland and. Uh, I was sitting on a train once just before I got food poisoning and across the aisle were sitting four Irish ladies and they were discussing literature. In fact, they were discussing my latest novel. So I, of course, eavesdropped and one of them said, well, I found it a wee bit long. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite long. You're right. It was long. Anyway, it's, it's nice to have a, a seat behind the curtain and, and hear what people are really saying but you Irish are not shy about telling you what they think about somebody's book they will tell you
0: oh yeah they will tell you straight but, uh, but we, we we do have that facility with words which you have just displayed over the past three minutes of you know starting to answer one question and quite deftly moving off into a totally different area let me min- yeah. let me ask you one further question on the expression of grief I totally take your argument that the you know they the, the, the story is not just about the writer it's about the reader and with Without the right reader, the story it just almost doesn't exist. I suppose it, it could be argued, but having uh, having used it as as a way, it, does it do anything for the writer having written it in terms of your own personal grief?
2: Oh, I think so, but I'm but I don't I couldn't you know there are no test cases. I can't say this is what it would have been mm. like, if I hadn't done it, but this is what it's like since I have there are no equivalencies there i mean you just don't know and and as we also know everybody goes through this in their own way
0: I'm sure you're wary about giving any kind of advice to young people because in your collection of essays, Burning Questions, (laughs) you have a wonderfully witty essay about which you title, entitled Polonia, which uh, uh, deals with this whole uh, idea of what the elders should, how we should, how elders should advise the younger generation. Um, are, Are you clearer on your answer to that, having written the essay? I know it's an older essay.
2: I would say only if asked, because if you start giving them tons of advice that they haven't asked for, they just won't hear it anyway, Uh, as you know perfectly well, remembering yourself at the age of 16. Uh, So if they want to know how to do something, they'll ask you.
0: Uh, the, another essay that that stood out to me is a phenomenal collection of essays which goes right across the time, but uh, right across your time, really from post nine uh, eleven. That's kind of the starting point. You, you you reference in the introduction that we're in a new world. You ask a question in two thousand and eighteen: Am I a bad feminist? What prompted you to ask that question?
2: well i think it was a particular case at the university of british columbia in which uh, everybody jumped on somebody who had been accused of misconduct without knowing anything about it so it's the without knowing anything about it that reminds me of similar moments of of cultural panic sort of moral panic in which all of a sudden everybody's very agitated about something and with each one of those there's there's always a bad thing you can be accused of that sort of curtains for you um i was just reading about the french revolution and once they'd called robespierre a tyrant he was done for because tyrant was the bad word for mao's cultural revolution it was capitalist rotor So in the 17th century, it was witch. And a couple of centuries before that, that's how they did in Joan of Arc. So like that, there's moments at which just to be accused of something is the end of you. I think people have moved beyond that now, that particular cultural moment, uh, because because once you have an infallible weapon, some people are going to misuse it and and do and have and i think we're back in the days we're back in the land what with the uh january 6 hearings we're back in the land of let's see the evidence it's not actually being a bad feminist to say it does women no good huh. to wild unsubstantiated pile on accusations if we don't know what you're talking about
0: uh, and it, it leads me to, you know, how in terms of feminism, in terms of social conscience, it must be hugely gratifying to you uh, the number of times in which the costumes from The Handmaid's Tale have been at the centre of very important activism and of very important protests.
2: It's not actually hugely gratifying to me because I would much rather there not be the occasion for it. So if I had a choice between, oh, hooray, everybody's using The Handmaid's Tale costumes, to um, I wish they didn't have to do it. I would take the second.
0: Yeah, I think many people would probably agree with you on that. Can we finish, Margaret, with a poem which I I, I must say I find deeply moving in how you've expressed your thoughts here? Will you introduce the visible, the invisible man, for us, and and then read it to finish our our interview?
2: Okay, so it it is about Graham, and it was written. Uh, before he died. And we both knew that he was going to do that fairly soon. And I have to say, just to make you feel better, that that he did pretty much what he wanted to, which was he exited the earthly plane while he was still himself. And uh, oddly enough, a lot of members of his family go to London, England to die. No jokes, please. Uh, you're not allowed to say, why else would you go there? <laughs> <laughs> Australia. So yes, we knew that this was going to happen pretty soon. We didn't know exactly uh, when, but we kind of knew how. So invisible man. It was a problem in comic books drawing an invisible man. They'd solve it with a dotted line that no one but us could see. us with our snub noses pressed to the paper, the invisible glass between us, and the place where invisible men can exist. That's who is waiting for me, an invisible man defined by a dotted line. The shape of an absence in your place at the table, sitting across from me, eating toast and eggs as usual, or walking ahead up the drive, a rustling of the fallen leaves, a slight thickening of the air. It's you in the future. We both know that. You'll be here but not here. A muscle memory like hanging a hat on a hook that's not there any longer.
0: Margaret Atwood reading her poem Invisible Man, which is dedicated to her late husband, Graham Gibson. Margaret spoke to me on Arena on September the 7th this year. Walter March is a legendary Hollywood sound designer, a three-time Academy Award winner from nine nominations. His decade-spanning career as a film editor, sound designer, writer and director has included work on era-defining films like Apocalypse Now, The Godfather Parts 1, 2 and 3 and The English Patient. I started my recent conversation with Walter March by asking him about his sound design in the famous restaurant scene in The Godfather, where Michael
3: Corleone, played by Al Pacino, kills a rival mob boss. Back then, there was a tradition that any film that was over two and a half hours long would have to have an intermission. And so when we were making The Godfather, there was going to be an intermission. And Francis uh, Coppola and Nino Rota, the composer, had uh, decided that they would have a big operatic music after the killing of Solazzo at mm. the restaurant. So they didn't want to spoil that music by having music underneath the scene in the restaurant. But that scene is uh, th- three or four minutes long. A third of it is in Italian without any subtitles. And so Francis and I thought, well, it needs something. What can we doomed hmm. to add some element to it. And I grew up in New York, not very far from that location, and I knew that that whole part of the Bronx was riddled with elevated subway trains, uh, and they make a particular kind of uh, grinding noise. And I thought, if we introduce that sound as a pulse and then uh, took it away and then introduced it again louder until finally, just before the murder itself, it would reach an apex. That would kind of be like the the string section (laughs) in Psycho just leading up to the murder.
0: (laughs) Well, let's have a listen to how that turned out and no subtitles on the screen and therefore no subtitles here on the radio either. We'll hear a little bit of Italian at the top and then that move towards Michael Corleone and the, the assassination or the killing that takes place. Il there from The Godfather. you this. i a going to do sound Steve is there from The Godfather. you're you're Very gruesome. Yeah, it is. It's (laughs) extraordinary that, because you you even get the sense of it as you hear it. You don't necessarily need the pictures.
3: I mean, it's interesting to hear it just as audio only, because if you didn't know the film, you would think they were standing next to a train. But in fact, all you're doing is looking at the uh, face of uh, Al Pacino as he is deciding to kill the man. Mm. And in a sense, this uh, sound is, it's a sort of metaphoric sound of the, the kind of neurological collision that's going on in his brain because he's not only killing somebody, he's killing the dream that he told Kay at the beginning of the film, which is, that's my family, Kay, it's not, not me. me yeah. And now with this one bullet, he's killing two people, but the third thing he's killing is that dream of not being part of the family. So it has an added intensity to it that that sound is, is getting at. Of course, uh, almost as powerful uh, <coughs> as screeching or
0: loud sounds is silence. Um, let's have a listen to that famous moment in, in Apocalypse Now, where they're all get they're getting ready to go in and over one of the villages. Very famous piece of Wagnerian music playing in the background, and then as we we'll hear in this, I think people need to know that suddenly that there's there's a very st- a jump cut to a village where people are going around. Minding their own business, doing their own thing. But we know that the helicopters are heading one place and it can only be that village. Here is that famous sequence from Apocalypse Now. scene from Apocalypse now Walter March sound editor with me in, in the studio this evening I, I watched was watching that again today and I watched on from there it's it's still as frightening today as it was back when we first saw it but th- that decision to to jump from you know the the big raunchy Wagnerian sound mm-hmm. the big militaristic helicopters flying out over the sea guys yeah, we know they're a little bit frightened but the innocence then of the the children's voices singing when we get Mm -hmm. to the village and the dogs kind of knowing what's going to happen.
3: Yeah. Um, In the screenplay, Francis uh, wanted that cut to silence, but he wanted it uh, via the tape breaking. So in the original screenplay, the tape that is playing the Valkyries was going to break and you suddenly cut to silence and then you would see a man fiddling with the tape trying to get it threaded up again. Mm I I wrestled with Francis and convinced him it's it's too powerful a thing to interrupt it like that. Let's let's have the cut to silence, but let's have it with an emotional component which is the innocent yes. children who are now going to run for cover and perhaps uh, be wounded or killed by mm. this attack. You wrestled <laughs> <laughs> was Francis on that?
0: Now, define what wrestling is in real terms, well, and is it in the editing? Yeah, of course it's in the editing
3: yeah. suite. It's just making the point of of how that sequence is ultimately going to be constructed. I I was able to convince him that this was a better idea than the idea that was in the screenplay. Yeah, and, and perhaps I mean, you, you talk. I just picked up on
0: that word wrestling there, but you, you talk about particularly with Mangela when it came to the English patient, that this was a real place where you felt. Everybody on the set, not just in the editing speech, which is where I guess you would do most of your work with a director, but everybody on the set was really involved and was encouraged to give opinions on what should or shouldn't happen.
3: Yeah, b- both Francis and Anthony, uh, maybe because they're Italian, uh, are very collaborative um, yeah. directors. They they invite the contributions and the sometimes spurious ideas of, of everyone. Um, there's a famous line from Francis uh, about the process of directing, and he said, the director is the ringmaster of a circus that is inventing itself. I, I love working with people like that because it involves the, the collaboration of the whole circus, uh, which, and the editing and the sound is part of the circus. So and and the, the the film that you worked with Anthony Miguel
0: on well you've worked on several but the one that most people remember is the English Patient for which you you did that was one of the films for which you you won an Oscar. What are your memories of that time and of I suppose I'm I'm coming to the the scene where uh, you know the torture scene effectively in this. Right.
3: It it was a a film with many flashbacks. I think there were mm. forty forty or forty five. Cuts back and forth from the monastery, where you see Rafe finds as the wounded, uh, disfigured patient, and then you see him as the handsome young Rafe finds, uh, starting an illicit love affair with the wife of Jeffrey Clifton. So that the challenge of the film was balancing all of those. Uh, cuts back and forth and to to keep the plates of one thing spinning while not allowing the plates of the other one to stop spinning by the time you've got back to it. Sound designer Walter March there speaking about his award-winning work
0: on The English Patient, The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. You're listening to Arena's Bank Holiday Monday special. The actor Charlotte Rampling is a curious and captivating figure in the history of cinema. A star since her first outing on the silver screen in Georgie Girl when she was still in her teens. Her work to date includes landmark films like The Night Porter, François Ozon's Swimming Pool and Denis Villeneuve's Dune. In fact, she's just finished her work on his second instalment of Dune in Budapest. In her latest film... Juniper, Charlotte Rampling stars as Ruth, an emotionally remote and largely alcoholic, convalescing grandmother who somehow forges a bond with her long-lost grandson when she is forced through circumstance to stay with his family in New Zealand. Rampling is famously selective about her work, so when we spoke recently about Juniper, I asked her what it was about this script that made her say yes when she so often says no.
4: Yeah, I often say no because what I do seek out my characters to to have something that I feel is somewhere somewhere inside me, deep inside, some spirit to, to 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 get attached to. And Ruth is is such a outrageous, but also very brave and very as as very people who go out and and grab life as she does, being being a war reporter. They also have great frailty and fragility. And uh, there was a there was a, there was a depth and strength there that that fascinated me.
0: Let's have a listen to a clip where we certainly get her sense of individuality and how she takes. She does not suffer fools lightly at all. <laughs> this is a scene where an unfortunate Anglo- an unfortunate Anglican minister comes to the house to visit her. <laughs> uh, this is Reverend Matthews played by Brian Call, uh, and it, you're, you you have a nurse at this age. Ruth is needs to be cared for. She's come to her her grandson's house, and we'll talk about that relation to her and her son's house rather where her grandson is we'll talk about that relationship shortly but I do want to give a sense of the woman herself so in right. comes poor Reverend Matthews with Sarah uh, thinking that there might be a, a, a little bit of soul saving to be done and um, yeah,
4: Ruth yeah, lets yeah, him
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ruth lets him know what she thinks particularly at the very end of this clip where she is quite rude with her language let's be honest let's, let's listen Ruth this
5: is Reverend Matthews
4: Good morning. Is it?
6: I thought you might like to talk.
4: Why did you think that? Forgive me, how can I help you? Uh, well, I'm here for you, so we could just enjoy a cup of tea, get to know each other. I don't really do tea. Or I could offer you communion and absolution. How do you mean? Well, if you've got something on your mind, regrets, perhaps, then I can absolve you. I don't have regrets. Right. We can talk about a deal, maybe. Excuse me? I can make a donation to your church. Which church is it? Anglican. I'm not judgmental. I'm happy to work with anyone for a clean slate. How much would it take? (laughs) Five hundred? Thousand? Thousand it is. Uh, Look, you do deals with the devil, madam, not with God. Oh, come on. Check is a far more honest transaction than listening to my regrets and shame. Please take it. You can't just buy your way into heaven. What can you offer me then? Well, if you don't have faith, then nothing. Well, then fuck off.
0: There she is, telling him what to do. Charlotte Rampling as Ruth in the film Juniper. And delighted to have Charlotte speaking with us on the programme this evening. She certainly, uh, uh, she has mastered the art of the short question and of the short response, hasn't she?
4: <laughs> you can get on much quicker in life like that because they <laughs> just just get out.
0: Yeah. But I guess you yeah, know, I, I play that scene to give us a to give us a sense of the the fun. I, I said to you before we started that you made me laugh out loud several times. But you also did move me in in ways as well that I wasn't quite expecting. Uh, the film to turn uh, later on, and it is about the relationship in many ways between Ruth, the grandmother, and Sam, the the grandson, although. The father is in the mix there somewhere, which is probably part of, mm, of her mm. dealing with with the with the grandson in many ways. Um, George Ferrier, who who plays that character, um, I, I believe he wrote to you before even meeting you or, or getting together on set.
4: Yes, it was a, it was a delightful old fashioned way to to communicate because I don't think I had a letter from a young man for a very 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 long time. You know, we don't do it that way really anymore, do we? Through mails or Mm. I don't know all the systems we have. Yes he wrote on two or three occasions and then we had a correspondence quite before before we actually did the film we were corresponding and it was it was a lovely way of, of starting the process because it was his first big film his first film really because he'd come out of acting school. So it was a way of yeah letting letting mm. him feel that there was a real that there was that there was a real caring on my part as far as he was concerned, and that he mustn't be you know nervous and impressed by me just because I had much more experience and I was older than him. So all that was dealt with really before we actually started. So it was he it was a very sweet and intelligent thing to do. Well, um, also, it
0: was it a was very uh, beautiful response to, to get rid of any of his fears, maybe around being intimidated by somebody with the experience and, and obviously that you have. And if he's seen many of your characters and indeed if, if he's even got it, yeah. read a little bit of Ruth, he'd know that you were well capable of giving a stare that would stop any conversation dead.
4: <laughs> and then by writing in that way, he just saw that I was you know just uh, actually quite a, Quite a communicative and rather rather nice person. <laughs> well, you know, and l- then I said, to, and then I said to him, "Beware, because you know, you, I've got to be really mean in this picture at the beginning." <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, a very different scale, I would have thought, uh, to Dune with uh, Denny Vinov And I know you've just completed the the second of the Dune films. And, no. and 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 you, your big scene in the first one with Timothy uh, Timothy Chalamet again a young actor um, and you see him now flying yes. could you see that in him even in that in that scene where you were basically dressing him down.
4: Yeah, here, here I go again. <laughs> yeah, dressing dressing them down. I mean, what what, what is my destiny? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, it, it's, it's it's working fine, and I I do love doing these roles. Yes, Timothy, I could see very much, and I said to to, to Denny actually, because Denny asked Denny Devilleneuve asked me after we'd done that scene, he said he asked me what I thought, and I thought he's he's a real raw talent. You're going to have to you're going to have to guide him, you know. Yeah. But he's there. He's absolutely there.
2: How dare you use the voice on me?
4: Put your right hand in the box. Your mother bade you obey me. I hold at your neck the gom java. Poison needle. Instant death. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box. And you die. What's in the box?
0: Pain. And that was Charlotte Rampling speaking to me about Juniper and other matters. Charlotte, of course, was Oscar nominated in 2016 for her leading role in the film 45 Years. And there is indeed Oscar buzz around the next film we're going to feature and the actors in it. Martin McDonagh's latest, The Banshees of Inish It charts the hurtful and occasionally violent fallout from the breakup of a long-standing friendship and how this is felt in the small island community. This all takes place against the backdrop of the civil war playing out in the far distance of the mainland In the film Colin Farrell is Porick, a somewhat simple man whose life falls apart when his friend Colm played by Brendan Gleeson dumps him for no apparent reason What follows is a very human tale of rejection persistence and heartbreak My colleague Sinead Egan met Martin McDonagh and the two men who play Colm and Porrick Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell all working together for the first time since In Bruges 14 years ago But before we hear them let's listen to a clip from the film featuring Gleeson and Farrell along with John Kenny and Pat Short the Unbelievables as Jerry and John Joe the Barman
7: <laughs> How do How do Porrick
6: Sit somewhere else.
5: Huh?
0: Uh,
5: but I have my pint there, Colin.
0: He has his pint there, Colin. From when he came in and ordered his pint before. No. Okay.
6: I'll sit somewhere else, So Are you rowing?
5: I didn't think we were rowing.
6: Well, you are Rowan. Well, you are rowing. He's sitting outside in his own like I watch him call. It does look like we're rowing.
5: I suppose I best go talk to him. So, see what all this is fecking about. That would be the best thing. Colin, your character Porak—he has a very human reaction <coughs> to a very human experience. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? How did you find Heart out? Heartbreak. Just yeah. heartbreak, something that we can all relate to in our lives from, you know, some of us from a very young age, some of us from later, but inevitably the world hurts us and relationships hurt us and, and caring for people hurt us. And sometimes it's the price you pay to be in a relationship where care and love is present, is, you know, even the fear that comes as a result of the threat of loss of that relationship. But here it's not the threat, it's the actuality. You know, in the first two minutes of the film, this fella tells me that he just doesn't want to be my friend anymore. And there's not much I have in my life outside of... The love of a couple of people, him being one and Kerry's character, Kerry Conning's character, Siobhan, my sister being the other. So, um, yeah, the ultimatum that he gives me at the start is utterly crushing. And, and I, I don't think I understand the kind of house of cards that is beginning to fall apart within me, you know. But the whole story is my, my dealing with and reckoning with the consequences of my life being finished as I know it or as I knew it. And Brendan, in his poem *Epic*, Patrick Hamer writes about, "I made the Iliad from such a local row," and that's this again, isn't Glad it? God make yeah. own importance. Yeah. yeah,
6: that's exactly it. And that's it's something that you know the idea of the local story being. You have to be very careful because a local story can just stay local sometimes and actually becomes parochial and doesn't communicate itself. And I think uh, other other thing about writing deep in what you know and that it will find its own level. It's, if you unearth a truth that is metaphysically universal and that it applies across the board, it, it becomes the best communication for Like, it's been amazing that people of different cultures are, are zoning in on this, because the emotion is universal. Sometimes you can write about a cabinet uh, and keep it, you know, talking about a ditch, and it remains about a ditch, or it remains about your ditch rather than the, the, everything. Uh, So it's a very—I believe it. I've always wanted to do it. Say, for example, as far as my own kind of uh, aspirations being concerned, I've always wanted to stay in the Everyman. It's great crack going out and doing the great, or the or the fantastical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, the most interest is always in the everyday. Say, I think. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah.
5: Getting back to the specifics of this particular film and where you filmed it, I mean, you were there in Inishmoor, you were on Achill Island. How excited are you for the people of that place to see this film? Because, I mean, they were with you. There was a few there, there. last night. You know what? I was absolutely relieved. The oh, similar yeah. relief that you experienced with your pals, your musician friends. Yeah. Um, I was just so relieved uh, that none of them took umbrage or felt insulted or slighted or like we were casting aspersions and or judgments on life on the island. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't realise I was, okay. and why was until that? last night. Why didn't I realise, or why was why I worried? Were you worried? Because you're telling a story that, that is using the backdrop of a certain kind of um, geographical place. Even though Inish Aran doesn't exist, we all know we shot it on Inish Moor, mm-hmm. we all know we shot it on Achill Island, we all know we're telling the story of an island set off the west coast of Ireland. We're so we, we can't music, wash our yeah. hands, we're playing Irish music, we're speaking with Irish accents, it's an Irish story. Mm-hmm. And I think it does have a universality to it in relation to the human condition that is allowing people of all cultures to be drawn to it and, and find um, an expression of their own experiences in this story but essentially it's a very, very Irish piece. And so I just they they welcomed us into their lives. They welcomed us into their literally into their homes when we were shooting there and, and we all became pals it was like one big family effort so I just wanted them to feel like we weren't we weren't above it we weren't supercilious in any kind of way because that was the last thing we were coming from so a few of them last night saw it and they came back afterwards and they said it's all in there it's beautiful
6: really we feel so proud of yeah, it and y- it was the best review I've ever had yeah you, know? you can feel threatened you know like you can feel threatened that in some way you're lessening, you're lessening there was a whole thing about a brother Rarte, for example where some people in the South thought they're oh yeah they're taking the good parts of our culture and then they're laughing at it because. No, not at all. There's a kind of something where, like, there's a thing of community in this. And well, I was kind of really worried about it from the very beginning because I knew the story where the community turns, turns like the way you know, you see if a dog is kind of you know suddenly wounded in a fight or something like that, all the other pack of dogs turn on them, in a way that's and like there's a little bit of of the community turning, but it's like it's as true. Like they turn on me in the film. That's what I'm saying. It's like they, they turn and I was afraid that, they would, that people that we, we were treated with, that we saw the best of community in communal Living, would feel a little bit kind of hard done by, by the fact that in this film we're exploring when the thing turns over the other way. Oh, yeah. And like it's really, I was talking last night about Twitter or something, it's actually such a modern thing to do and a, and a constant thing to do that when people, when, the, when the thing flips, suddenly everybody turns on somebody and the cruelty that comes... You know, in rejection. So when you're thinking about the community that we shot in, you don't want them to think that's a reflection of their community. It's because we're talking about the human nature, and the whole culture is heightened anyway. The language is heightened. It's deliberately epic in a way that hopefully will transcend time. Um, So you you'll be I would be worried that people would feel are they making? But there hasn't been that. Like I was really. I had some people over in London seeing it, you know, and I was really, really worried that, they, that that would be the reaction. And it hasn't happened at all. Some of you were people from the island yesterday, yesterday mm. and we are just, as well, yet yeah, they were more or less sane. So the fact that that has transcended any of that, that what people are thinking about the loss of a friendship, the loss of a relationship, the loss of, you know, to grief mm-hmm. or whatever else is, uh, it's fantastic. It's been, it's been taken, um, and it has crossed that boundary.
5: Now... If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. Uh, with all me heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild.
6: But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well,
5: that's what I was thinking,
6: like... I just don't like you no more.
5: Martin, what made you want to make a film about, or a story about stubbornness and rejection? <laughs>
7: um, I guess those two words probably weren't in, uh, it, it, literally just a sad breakup story was, yeah. was what I was really going to, but not have it be the usual, you know, romantic one, um, but have it to be, you know, a, a male, Friendship that ends horribly just just felt like there was, it was something that hadn't really been seen too often true, before, yeah. but just to keep the sadness of that was was uppermost.
5: I don't know if this is a fair question,
6: but whose side are you on?
7: Ah, I'm on as as the father of the two characters. Um, I love them both equally. I think it's probably fifty-one percent in Colin Farrell's favour. Okay. But I think on the at the script stage it was like 60-40. You're all with him, but because Brendan is such a sensitive actor, and because we kind of discussed of his reasons for what he's doing, I think we've we've hopefully it's kind of equal. But I think niceness is important, and and Colin's character is all about that. So so I I don't like the whole idea of artists in turmoil and being cruel to people as 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 a useful thing. So. Still lean a little bit towards Colin.
5: I didn't hear those to be a session. Last minute, tea.
0: Colin decided. All the ladies love Colin, you know. <laughs> Always did. Yeah, that's not true. You're still bad, Dominic. Out. You said bad until April.
1: what do we know? April. Well, put that stick outside anyways, and don't be bothering the women.
2: There's women. There is women. And good ones.
0: And that was Barry Keoghan, Pat Short, and of course, Colin Farrell, in a scene from The Banshees of Inish Aran. And before that, we heard the writer and director, Martin McDonough, and Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, the stars of the film, talking to Sinead Egan.